not okay. <laughs> um, he's pretending like it's okay. It's not okay. I mean, he's like having sex workers slap him in the face alone on Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not the best. It's just not right. the best. Hello, everyone. This is Alex. And this is M. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is the podcast for TV lovers, movie buffs, and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we loved, what we hated, and what's just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to. And do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Today we'll be discussing the back half of the critically acclaimed Mad Men, AMC's period drama about the inner lives of Manhattan's elite advertising executives was responsible for putting the spotlight on so many previously unrecognized but immensely talented actors and writers and the network itself, as well as Mad Men's creator. But what was it about this series set in the 1960s that resonated and continues to intrigue us in the 21st century? How did Mad Men manage to grab and hold the attention of so many people for so many reasons? Stay tuned. everyone if you haven't listened to last week's episode stop right now and go check that out but if you are joining us again um here's some critical details about mad men the series is an american period drama set between 1960 and 1970 it was created by matthew weiner it was released from july 19 2007 through may 17th 2015. It aired on the AMC network for seven seasons and a total of 92 episodes. The series stars John Hamm as our protagonist, Donald Draper, Elizabeth Moss as Margaret, aka Peggy Olsen, first Don's secretary and later a copywriter in her own right, Vincent Carthizer as Peter Campbell, aka Pete, at this point, a junior partner at Sterling Cooper Draper Price. January Jones as Elizabeth, a.k.a. Betty, first Hofstad, then Draper, and currently Betty Francis. She's Don's first wife. Christina Hendricks as Joan Harris, previously Joan Holloway, the office manager at Sterling Cooper Draper Price. John Slattery as Roger Sterling, one of the senior original senior partners and uh, the son of one of the original founders of Sterling Cooper. He is Don's former mentor. We have Aaron Staten as Ken Cosgrove, Rich Sommer as Harry Crane, Kiernan Shipka as Sally Beth Draper, Don and Betty's oldest child, Robert Morse as Bert Cooper, Jared Harris as Lane Price, Christopher Stanley as Harry, Henry Francis, Betty's second husband. Jessica Paré as Megan Calvert, Draper, Don's second wife. 
Michael Gladys as Paul Kinsey, J.R. Ferguson as Stan Rizzo, Sterling Cooper Draper Price's art director, Ben Feldman as Michael Ginsberg, and Tiana Paris as Don Chambers, Don's secretary, and then later Jones' chosen replacement as office manager. These are all of our major players in seasons four through seven, so let's jump into it. Right. So where we last left off, we found out that the British company PPL, I I don't remember actually what it's called, but I do know the initials are PPL, had sold uh, the firm to um, another bigger firm, McCann, which is a rival. And basically they all you know, did some finagle shenanigans and, and quit and did the thing to um, buy back the company. And so we kick off season four um, at the newly minted Sterling Cooper Draper price, um, which uh, the price is uh, Lane. And Don is also newly divorced, uh, he's officially officially divorced, living on his own. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's where we're at season, season four. Now I will say before we jump into season four, that with most shows, um, Alex and I are pretty much in agreement that their best season, um, is usually somewhere between seasons two and three, right? Um, where the show finally figures out like, this is what we're doing. This is the direction that we want to go. Our minds are made up for me personally. The best seasons of Mad Men are actually seasons four and five, Mm. which is interesting for a few reasons. We're well in the, the, the story by now, but seasons four and five see the characters going through the most transition in their professional and their personal lives, which can be very, very hard to put down on paper without making the audience feel lost. And when I look, when I rewatch seasons four and five, I realize just how much they managed to pack in those seasons without making it feel like the pacing was too fast, which I feel is really admirable. Same. Um, uh, I, you know, I think I still like season three, probably more season two and three the best, but I will say like season four and five are like very well executed. And there are definitely things that I really love about seasons four and five that obviously we don't get in two and three or, and that I think are very interesting and, um, and stuff that's happening. Cause I do have a lot of notes, particularly about season five. So. Ooh, yeah. But yeah, like I like I said, um seasons two and three I thought were really great as well. I'll be honest with you, I think that um all of Mad Men seasons are are quality. Like, you know, shout out to the writers' room. There were there are a few bumps along the road, things that I think we could have done without or that could have been executed better if we'd had some uh, Negroes in that writer's room. (laughs) 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 But um, I will say, like, for for me, from a technical standpoint, not just from a viewer standpoint, I like to see this transition. But from a writer standpoint, I have to give credit for just how hard it is to write about characters in such transition and not just one character, but several. Don, Peggy, Joan, Roger are all going through it. Oh, and Pete, they're all going through it and they're all having a, a identity crisis, a marital crisis, 
personal crisis, business upheaval in these seasons. And it's really beautiful to see this juggling act and this balancing act. And I think the writers definitely deserve their kudos for that. Um, So let's talk about season four. This one is also 13 episodes, and um, the period it covers is from November of 1964 through October of 1965. Right. Um, so, Don, so season four is like when we, I mean, even this opening episode is like so, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> like it's, Don is not not okay. Um, he is pretending like it's okay. It's not okay. I mean, he's like having sex workers slap him in the face alone on Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not the best. It's just not right. the best. This is probably a really good time to bring up the fact that <laughs> Mad Men definitely does a really good job of portraying the uh everyday casual alcoholism of the era (laughs) right yeah like don develops a quote-unquote drinking problem in season four but from the honest perspective of someone born in the late 20 20th century um i view it and you can view it as Everyone on the show has a drinking problem, and his problem isn't identified as much until he starts drinking even more than usual. Right. I was about to say, like, they're <laughs> all they're all functioning alcoholics. Everybody, including Don. It's just that, like, but this is definitely the season where it it worsens to a significant degree. Right. And they call it a problem because he can no longer function. Right. That's what happened right. with Fred um, in earlier seasons. It's only a problem for these people when you can no longer function. All the partners have bars in their offices. They drink as soon as they come in in the morning. They drink when they have business meetings in their office. They drink at lunch. They drink at tea. (laughs) They drink at cocktail hour. Uh, They drink when there's bad news. They drink when there's happy news. When are y'all not drinking? Right? I'm just like, whoa, (laughs) somebody like... You know, I was like, you know, you can have tea. Like, you can... Coffee is Water is free. Water is Water free. Is free. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are other things. Ooh, but yeah, he's going through it. He is no... He's barely functional right now. He's holding it together by the slimmest of threads. He's got... Um, a a sex worker who comes to visit him, who it's made clear through the dialogue, is like his regular girl, Right. Right. She visits him at his home and they engage in sex and she slaps him around when I don't even want to get into the ingrained childhood trauma that causes him to be aroused by this because we know what his relationship with his stepmother was like. Um, and then she goes home to Thanksgiving with her family while he's alone and Betty and the kids enjoy their first Thanksgiving with Henry's family. Um, His life is completely falling apart, and it's very clear now that even though he took her for granted and disrespected her in numerous ways with numerous people over the years, Betty and that, I guess, that facade of stability that she offered, that he could dip into um, whenever he got bored of playing around in the city, you know, going back to the stability of her and the kids in the suburbs was what was holding him together. Absolutely. And we really see, absolutely. And we really see like this sort of, um, at least for me, like this, his sort of alcoholism and the, the banana nuts 
things he's doing comes to like a head, at least for me, when he sleeps with his secretary during Christmas and then he completely forgets that he had sex with her. Yeah. So his secretary, I I watched that episode or not the episode, but that specific scene when she comes back into the office several times. Cause at first I also had the impression that he completely forgot, but then I realized what Faye realized. He only pretended to forget. (laughs) Oh, he pretended. Well, yeah. I definitely read it as like, he totally forgot. Like, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she walked out of the office thinking that he forgot as well. But then she remember he said prior to them sleeping together that he would make sure she got her bonus even if he had to see to it himself. And so she opens the Christmas card to see her bonus. And her bonus is like a hundred dollars. And for reference, most of the other secretaries in that office would get like a fifty dollar bonus max. And so the fact that he gave her a hundred dollar bonus for me was evident of his guilt. Oh, that's okay. That's fair. That's a good, yeah. I vibe with that. So he's looking at her and she's looking at him and he's pretending not to understand. And you can kind of see the panic on his face, like, please go away and let's both pretend this never happened. And, and then it's made even more clear when they're in that, um, that Pons focus group Mm -hmm. and everyone's talking about their skincare regimen And his eyes are fixed on her as she's barely holding it it together and she's about to burst into tears, right? When everyone's talking about their love lives. Um, Oh, yeah. She totally cries. She breaks down. Right. She completely breaks down. And his eyes are on her the entire time, like, because he can see that she's about to, like, collapse at any moment. And for me, this was evident of his guilt and him pretending that he forgot was definitely uh, him knowing that he broke his own rules and he didn't want to confront that. Cause I think Don's rules are like, he never slept with his secretaries before. Right. And he's never right. He's never slept with any of Betty's friends or family members. And he's never slept with the wife of a colleague. Those are his rules. <laughs> right. And like, and they mean a lot to him. They're like, he, he I, I guess Don's sort of, his his own idea of his own like moral integrity, uh, and the and these quote unquote rules like they mean a lot to him. Like they're his guiding compasses, and and he takes them very seriously. So the fact that he breaks them uh, is very is very like oh for him. What makes the situation worse for me is that when when Peggy goes to comfort her, and she's speaking to Peggy with the assumption that Don has slept with all of his secretaries. And Peggy's, of course, uh, offended by this, but I think her reaction only upset Faye more when she says to Faye, um, what happened to you? Well, your experience was not my experience, essentially, right? Right. And now Faye realizes, okay, so it was just only me, and now she feels doubly the fool. Right. That's a really interesting scene because it's like, um, it's, it's really interesting. That whole moment is so, so interesting because it's the first time Peggy really has to confront the idea that like her mentor and this person who has been extremely good to her 
in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, in every way, really, uh, very formidable uh, to her and her life is not uh, the perfect person. And he's actually a very damaged person and that he could be so cruel to someone else. Right. And I think there was a matter of her honor, right? Because Peggy's used to people making assumptions that she slept with Don to get a copywriting job. A lot of the men joke about it all the time, even though I feel by the time we're in season four, most people realize that she is very smart um, and that she earned this. Um, But having to defend herself to someone who was literally in the position that she used to be, someone who's Don's secretary, I feel, and, you know, having another woman think so so ill of her, um, I feel really struck a nerve with Peggy. It didn't, it wasn't good. It was, a, it was pretty ugly. That's, that's definitely what happens. And then, although it's, hor- so then, like, the secretary, like, quits, right? And she asks him to write a, a, a letter of recommendation. Mm. And then when he's like, I don't know, just write whatever you want. And, um... Right, like, write whatever you want, and then I'll sign it. And then she, like, breaks the shit in his office. I was like, deserved, deserved friend. Man, listen, I was hoping that she was going to take an aim at his face. Um, but, you know, the women back then were so classy, even in their anger. I think that's something that's really always intrigued me about Mad Men. I've seen Betty angry. I've seen Joan angry. I've seen Petty, Peggy angry. And it really is a sign of the times that they can be so angry, yet... Everybody has that line that they won't cross, things that they won't say, things that they won't do. <laughs> real, real, real. So, <laughs> girl, I really wanted him to get hit upside the head. So after this whole event and after some some drinking stints, you know, Don does in a in a fit in a in a turn that I was not expecting. Don, you know, starts limiting his not limiting. I mean, limiting as much as you can, I guess. But he starts journaling, starts doing some self-reflection, starts really thinking about this, uh, you know, realizes that this is not maybe the best courses of action. So he starts journaling, doing some thinking, doing some healing. And you know what? Love to see it. Love to see it. Oh, yeah. Introspective Don is my favorite version of Don. Um, And I think the introspection helps him marry his, you know, dual warring personalities, right? I think it it, it brings it, it bridges things between who he is and who he's trying to be. But Don being Don never really stops using women, particularly women's bodies, <laughs> as a form of therapy. And thus we're introduced to like a one of the new characters on the show who is Dr. Faye, who is a blonde researcher. Right, right, right. Uh Faye Miller, I believe her name is, becomes yeah. Don's latest love interest well yes and no um prior to her there's a fling and i use a f- the term fling loosely because they never actually have sex and he never really takes her seriously bethany van nuys um played by the incomparable anna camp you guys might remember her as sarah newland on true blood bethany van nuys is a very sweet girl with a lot of integrity and morals and don isn't really serious about her but Don knows that she looks good for him. So he is dating her in a very serious fashion. Um, but she kind of ruins it for herself 
but because the night she meets Betty, she is so intimidated by how beautiful his ex-wife is that she breaks her own rules and gives him a blowjob. And that's the last time she ever sees him. <laughs> and which is like, I mean, you guys kind of look like the same girl. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You look like her. What are you scared of? You Shut look up. like her except younger and childless. So you're winning here. That makes sense in a sense. Because if it's like, if he's dating somebody who looks exactly like his ex-wife, um, then, and that person is you, I suppose it's like, they're, he's not really over her. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe he's not really over right. it. Or he might just have a type, girl. Um, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a possibility, too. But Faye breaks her own rules. Even Don asks her, you know, when she unzips his pants, like, what are you doing? Because she's made it very clear that she's not the type of girl who engages in any form of sexual contact before serious commitment has been made, right? So in breaking her own rules, she basically diminishes herself in her in his eyes and he never sees her again. And he starts dating Dr. Faye. Um, Dr. Faye is a very intelligent woman. She is a straight shooter. She tells it like it is. And she's basically a lot of the things that Rachel was, except more socially acceptable on account of not being Jewish, right? Yeah, not being Jewish and um, just... Yeah, she's, she's, yeah. In in fact, like, she's, there's a lot of her that I think uh, her personality that re- that actually reminds me of Betty. She's probably, like, the anti-Betty, although mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a certain, in a, in a way, but, yeah. Yeah, I feel like she has, a, she had a lot of great qualities that would have been great for Don. She was very honest with him in a way that only Anna had been prior he and he she she he she was the first woman probably well actually the only woman that he wasn't married to who he confided his secret to right right which was a big deal uh, right she she catches him in the middle of like a panic he's having like a full blown panic attack sterling cooper draper price gets this contract for to do work for the government basically to do ads for like the government and so, of course, like, they start investigating everybody's background, um, including right. Don. And he realizes that, like, holy shit, like, he's about to go to prison. And <laughs> um, and, uh, she, and, he bas- and he has a full-blown panic attack while she's there. And he's like, so, by the way, like, I stole my name. And, it, yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a really, really big for him to, to do that and say that. Right, because he didn't tell B- Betty until they'd been married for 11 or 12 years. So that's a big deal. So I feel like they their relationship, w- when he told her that secret, I had so many so much hope and expectation for their relationship. She's a woman of great integrity. And I believe when, when things started to fail business-wise and she wouldn't leverage her position to help him, he started to, to, to lose interest in her, essentially. Well, no, she actually does. She... Remember, she goes back on it and she she does work. She does do do it to to get him the contract. Oh, I remember that, but I just remember her initial no, and I believe that initial no is what set everything into motion in his head. Anyway, that she even had to think about it that she wouldn't just immediately do what he wanted, like Betty, because she does come around and she ultimately does leverage the thing, and he gets the contract or whatever. I think it's when, like, he wants her to deal with Sally. Sally has to go back home 
and Sally's mm-hmm. like totally having a meltdown and because like she's not really good with kids he's mm-hmm. like no I think that's in his mind when he was like okay no like well I don't know honestly because they when that Sally thing happened and this was prior to the Heinz contract she she flat out says I'm not good with kids and he says he looks her right in the face and says they have a mother that doesn't matter to me but you know, later on when, after he proposes to Megan, um, I feel like you, you have a point because it's very clear that part of the reason why he proposes to Megan is because of how good she is with his children. Right. And I mean, and just like when I, the episode, when, when Sally's having this meltdown, she, she's, first of all, she's talking awkwardly. She's talking super awkwardly to Sally and he's sort of like, foists this like deal with my child he's he sort of just like deal with my child I can't deal with her right now and she's like oh like what and it's and he's asking her to deal with Sally and she's never even met these kids like it's her first time meeting like his daughter and now right. he wants her to like manage her in the middle of a meltdown and so obviously so on top of that so with that and then her not being good with children when Sally flies out of the room and then like plops on her face and then Megan is like, Oh, it's okay. Uh, and she hugs her. There is a distinct like shot, like of the camera with like, I think it cuts to Don and it cuts to Megan. And then I think it cuts to like a close of Megan hugging Sally and then it cuts Mm -hmm. back to Don. Um, and so that's right. When I, was like, oh, I do remember that. Mind, yeah, that's when I was like, oh, in his mind, he's like, um, yeah, this isn't um, working. But it's interesting that you. So you've talked about this, or like we've, yeah, we've we've talked about this, but we've talked we talk about how men are like when they're ready to get like remarried or like be whatever. How it's really not about like the right woman. It's just about whoever is there. And mm. I definitely feel like that was Megan. She was just there. <laughs> right. She's there. It doesn't hurt that she's also young and beautiful. And that her role in Don's life was initially doing whatever he asked. Right? And I think this is where the disconnect is with Faye. She wouldn't do what he asked initially with the Heinz contract. And then she couldn't do what she asked um, in relation to his children. She's not someone that Don could just throw his problems at and she just catch them and solve them. Yeah, definitely. And it's, and it's interesting because like, so Don's like doing a lot of journaling, doing a lot of self-reflection, you know, he's healing himself, you know, he's in a relationship with Faye who makes him think through his problems versus just acting. She's also a very like grounded person. I am of the significant opinion that Don was never really in love with Megan. He was just sort of high off like all the healing that was going on and then was like, Oh, this is it. Right. Um, I do feel like, like there was that, I feel like it was, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I feel like it was a a mixture of things. I do think that Don was high off the healing or what he presumed to be healing. Right. Cause there's that, there's that always that time when you're doing the work where you feel like I have reached the finish line, but you're really just in the eye of the storm. Right. Um, 
So there's that. Um, there's the fact that Megan is very young, very beautiful. They had already slept together prior. Megan was willing to drop everything and come basically be a glorified au pair on this road trip. He was grieving the death of the most important woman in his life, Anna. Right. And Faye just wasn't there. He was never in love with Faye, so it's like out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> right, right, right. She just wasn't there. It's literally just who's there, <laughs> which is like, nuts. Like, but like, it really like you're here, you're cute, you'll do. Let's get married, girl. Let's get married, girl. And so and he gave her Anna's engagement ring from her from the real Donald Draper. For me, that was just screaming impulsive. You don't even know this woman. Right, right. He doesn't even know her. It's so goofy. It's the goofiest shit ever. And um, and when he announces it, like, and when he announces it, everybody congratulates. And it's significant that, like, Peggy and Joan go into, like, her office together, shut the door, and laugh about it. And just laugh about the whole engagement and how fucking goofy he is. Like... I mean, they as both. they should. Like, sir, sir, you were, we just laughed about Roger about this dumb shit. Right? We just laughed. Like, and I, and I think that is significant that, like, by the end, and this is all at the end of season four, like, that he does, um, he mirrors Roger, and he becomes the exact person who he, you know, really tutted up his nose at. and Because he, he hated... I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he hated Roger and Jane. He thought Roger was a high-key idiot, like a high, high high-key idiot. There's a scene where Roger says, I'm happy, and, you know, people are just, they they just all hate that I'm happy. And Don says to him, they don't hate that you're happy. They just know that you're foolish. So it's significant that he, too, becomes this very foolish person. Right. I mean, the only difference here is that Betty had already left Don and they were well divorced, Um, whereas Roger left his wife of many decades, Mona, to be with Jane. Right. Um, Right. And maybe in Don's mind, that difference is significant. But when you're talking about impulsively dating a much younger woman who was, uh, for all intents and purposes, your employee, it's really not the same it's really not that different at the end of the day. It's very much the same. Um, and honestly, Roger probably knew Jane better than he knew, um, he knew, um, Megan. He didn't even know that Megan wanted to be, uh, was serious about acting until after they were married. Right. And that's, that's in season five. <laughs> so before we move on to season five, I do want to bring up uh, a couple of things. Um, so Peggy starts, like, dating this new guy, like, this journalist, and his name is Abe, and he's, like, a ally. You know, he's, like, quote-unquote woke before woke was a thing. He's he's <laughs> goofy, too. But it is really... But I do find their relationship interesting because it's the first time he brings up to her sort of, like, the, I guess, evil in what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a conversation and he says something about, like, would you have done the ads for Barry Goldwater? Barry Goldwater being very a a very famous racist and, like, Klan member and, you know, Google. Um, And Peggy's like, oh, of course. (laughs) Like, sort of just thinking about 
the money that would have come from it or like the business versus like, okay, but like what effect is that having like in the world? Right. Um, and that initial I, conversation with Abe is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Go ahead. Continue. Oh, I was just saying, and Peggy doesn't take it well. She doesn't, she doesn't really do well. Peggy's reaction to Abe in that initial conversation is so white feminist. Now, mind you, Peg, the 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 advertising execs in particular, um, what well, in general, but Peggy in particular, throughout the run of the series, are judged a lot by intellectuals for what they do, and I don't think that that judgment is always um, valid. And a lot of the people judging them are no better than they are. Like Megan's father, we'll get to him in a bit. Um, <laughs> but um, or um, they too could use job stability because they clearly need it. But um, in this initial conversation at the well, their second conversation, which is at a bar, when A basically calls her out on the company's racism, her initial reaction is, "Where did you hear that?" And he says, "It was in the Voice, and it was in a lot of other publications." And she she still doubles down. I don't believe this company is racist. And then when she can no longer deny it, she goes on to say, "Well, I can't do a lot of things that Negroes um, um, can't do." And you know, he makes this kind of quip, um, but it's in all truth and honesty. And he's like, "Listen, no one is shooting women, and obviously he impl- it's implied white women to stop you from voting." Right. It, and it's funny, like, right, she could, Peggy compares herself to Black people, and he laughs at her. And she does not take that laugh well. <laughs> like, and then when he laughs at her, I think he thinks she's joking. And then he's like, oh, you're serious. Like, and I think he says, oh, you're serious. Like, what? Right. Um, and like, and I, I'm gonna be real. I don't like Abe, but she deserved to be laughed at. <laughs> she deserved to be, oh, she totally deserved to be laughed at. And it's also significant because it's, it's interesting to see it because in real time we see how Peggy forgets how her job and everything that she's doing now was such a stroke of luck. It It's so like 97% of it was luck because if you remember back to some of the earlier seasons when Peggy gets upgraded to a copywriter, it's not like she, after the Belle Jolie thing, um, it's, uh, it's not, um, it's not like she, after Belle Jolie, she was like, she really, every day she went in there and like did extra work and like, was like, Don, make me a copywriter. It's literally one day Don comes in and he's like, Hey Peggy, he's like, Peggy, come be a copywriter. It was so like just a flit of fancy in his mind, you know? Right. I mean, Peggy's talented and we'll never deny that, but she did not aspire to be a copywriter. She would have been perfectly fine having the job stability of being a well-paid, respected secretary. And that's it. And, and you know, A brings, up, brings this up to her that she's the only woman copywriter in her office. And she, you know, completely forgetting all this luck that you just mentioned— she was. She really became a copywriter because uh, Don's eye for talent and his good graces. Because there's lots of men in that era, and there's lots of men today that would have seen a talented woman and gone out of their way to make sure that you never got to where you wanted or where you deserve to be. Right. Right. And he. She says to to Abe, 
oh, well, I'm sure if they really tried, Negroes can work up to where I've worked up to. And I don't know what upsets me more, this response or the fact that this is still a stronghold in the mind of white feminists everywhere. <laughs> right. No, exactly. And and she specifically uses the words, they could fight their way in the same way I fought my way in. I'm like, baby, it was literally one day you were at your desk and Don was like, be a copywriter. Because like, and he did that, like, I, like you said, out of his good graces, like most people uh, would have just took her idea and kept it moving. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yup. Yep. So, and then if you, if you complained about it, got you fired. <laughs> right. Got you fired. You'd been like, well, you can go somewhere else. Um, and that doesn't take away from her talent and that clearly she has a mind for it and that she's very good at it. But I mean, come like, it's, it really is just somebody one day deciding that you can have a shot and it, and deciding it honestly, with little else to go on like that was it like she had done one thing that's it one thing it's not even like because we even when we eventually you know flash back to Don and Roger's meeting and how Roger sort of developed uh Don um you know Don had a book like this was like what he was aspiring to. This was what he was mm-hmm. working towards. This he worked in the first store and did his own copy in the first store. Um, you know, when Roger buys the fur from his store to give to Joan, he places his like ad in the in the box, knowing right, right? Like he like Don's like. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to make it like, I'm going to get it. Like I'm going to get out here and get this money. Peggy was just sort of like, Oh, you you know, it's, it's different. It's different girl. Now that doesn't, it doesn't take away from anything you're doing, but like know the difference. Right. Um, you know, cause like, as I said, she had, she was not aspiring to this. Every other person in that office had a book. All the copywriters had a book, all the art, um, directors and creative directors had a book, right? Peggy was a secretary with a good idea and Don took a chance on her and that chance paid off. That's all. That's like, all. you didn't fight your way in, sweetie. You might be fighting every day with these misogynistic, sexist assholes, but you're, you didn't fight your way to this job. Right. Uh, this job was what it was. So anyway, season... I love oh. how the conversation completely ignores that Negro women exist. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which we, yeah, basically, which, 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 girl, which we'll I, get to. The, the binary with which this conversation was had, because every time Abe and Peggy said women, they're obviously talking about white women. And every time they said Negro, they're obviously talking about black men, was such, was such a... There was a, a slight disconnect to watch this happen. And I, I think that a lot of black women often experience this when they hear black men talk about black struggles or, or they hear white women talk about women's struggles. And it's very clear they're not talking about us and to exist so heavily in the society, but consistently be overlooked. Right, exactly. 
Um, but yeah, we talked a lot about this season. Let's talk about some other like shining points, just small things that happen. Well, not small things, but let's talk very quickly. Um, Pete and Trudy have their baby girl, Tammy. Uh, that's that was really cute. Lane had a brief affair with a uh, black Playboy Club waitress, Tony. Um, but then his father literally canes him over the head and tells him to get his life together. <laughs> it's a horrible episode. Like I really was not expecting. It's really bad. I was like, why is this something that's happening right now? <laughs> I mean. The, like shout out to Natari Natari Naughton who plays Tony for getting that check, um, but the whole pr- premise of the episode was to show us how quickly Lane's life is unraveling because he really just can't get it together in the United States. Um, uh, Ken and Peggy and Ken save the company by bringing in Topaz pantyhose after Lucky Strike drops uh, Sterling Cooper Draper Price as their agency. Um, being dropped that way was honestly like a blow to the company, but I felt like it was karma for um, Roger and Don after the way that they sacked Sal, yes. knowing that league. Oh gosh, that was oh my gosh when Don fired Sal because like Sal would not basically like sleep with what's his face from Lucky yeah. Strike. I was like, oh, well, like. Roger- fired him don just told him quote you should have gone along with it when sal comes to him with the story and i'm just like did you really just tell that man to whore himself out to save to save (laughs) to save business and i mean i guess i blame don because don could have stopped it i mean because roger sort of i mean roger does fire him but like don could have been like hold on and 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 handled roger in the way that like he handles people like and that he knows how to handle Roger and he just didn't he was like well that's what you get for not like doing for whoring yourself out and I was like what like oh ugly and like honestly if anyone could have smoothed over the situation as you said it would have been Don Don knows how to handle Roger they are a lot of uh, alike and they're pretty much like brothers at this point um and the fact of the matter is Roger, for all his charm, is an old homophobe and racist. If Don had even whispered, hey, Lee Garner Jr. is gay as hell, and he hit on one of our married employees, that would have been that. He probably would have told Lee that he fired Sal, but then kept him on payroll anyway. Right. Like, or, or he would have done what, what, you know, Sal said, like, I'll leave the office for like a a couple of days, let Roger cool down and then come back. Like, and it'll be fine. And he, he doesn't, he just, he fires him and it's, oh, it's ugly. I hated it. And this has been a bully, like at the Christmas party that he invites himself to an office Christmas party. He, he basically, bullies Roger into dressing up as Santa. The tension in that scene was crazy. Like, how do you give, how are you basically letting a client run your business and telling you how to manage your affairs? Hate that. Hate it. (laughs) So all of that happens. Um, And then we see the worst of Betty this season. She fires Clara. um, And all Clara Listen, don't don't mess up Carla's name. I love Carla. sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I meant to write Carla and I put the L before the A, my bad. (laughs) 
she fires Carla. There's someone else on the show named Claire, but it's not her. She fires the 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 Drapers's uh, housekeeper and nanny Carla, who have been with them since before Sally was born, um, because. Carla allowed Glenn to go upstairs and say, come in the house, go upstairs and say goodbye to Sally. And they're only moving because Betty wanted to keep Glenn away from her daughter. And then after she fires Carla, Carla has to call Henry to give her a letter of recommendation because Betty refuses to after that woman worked for her for over a decade. Ugly. Ugly. So ugly. (laughs) So ugly. I mean, it's implied that Henry did give her this letter, but it's clear from the scene when Henry's like questioning her and and why she did this, that he lost a lot of respect for Betty for doing that. Yeah, Betty, (laughs) Betty's definitely like taking the divorce also in a hard way. It's just, it's manifesting in different ways. Like her sort of, need to control Sally it like becomes more pronounced and she it's all just like and this is another part of it she's just sort of like trying to to feel basically the after effects of Dawn are like happening to her like all this like and she's finally sort of I guess like in a space to deal with it and she just deals with it by like lashing out at her kids, at Sally, at Carla. And listen, Carla really was a real one because Carla did not tell Dawn that she was creeping. Carla raised them kids. Carla's been really down here. (laughs) She's been really down for a really long time. And like, that was ugly. It was hard. That was so ugly. And Carla did not deserve to be treated that way. The other pivotal thing that happens this season that will continue on to the next is that while Greg is away at Vietnam, um, you know, as an army surgeon, Roger and Joan go out to dinner. Just It's very platonic. She hasn't been unfaithful or anything like that. But while walking home, they get mugged. And in the aftermath of that, they have a one night stand. Joan ends up pregnant and we learn in these very, very well orchestrated shots that she's hiding a pregnancy. Like she told Roger she was pregnant. He gave her abortion money, but she rides the bus home from the clinic and we we don't know what she does. But later it becomes clear that she didn't go through with it. She'd already had two abortions and she's keeping this baby. There's like more of it like in season in season five. So season four, good, bad, basic. I think season four was really good. Season four showed pretty much every single character, major character on this show, at their absolute lowest point. And it did so in a way that did not feel forced or rushed. So I give it a very good, excellent even. What about you? Same. I give season four good. Um, it's it's really good. Uh, like you said, it's, it's a lot of these characters in metamorphosis and transition. Um, and we get to see it happening and, and it's, it's handled really well and very effectively. So season five, so season five, we kick it off with Don his is now remarried. Gone is the small apartment. Uh, and now he has bought like this really big place this penthouse in fact and we 
that he lives in with Megan. And um, we see him with these with these children, these 5011 children that he has. And uh, Kevin is born. That's Jones. The baby has been born. We're kicking off another year at, you know, Sterling Cooper, Draper Price. Right, right. Um, Don seems to have gotten his life together and, you know, gotten his life in order. Joan has her baby, Kevin. Um, Greg is believing that he's the father um, because this baby was was conceived seven weeks after Greg left. So she can kind of pull that, right? Yeah. She can can say that the baby was born a, a couple weeks uh, late, or if the baby's premature, say that he was on time. Obviously, Roger knows this is his kid. We don't actually see Roger acknowledging this, though, until halfway through the season when, you know, he tells her that he's divorcing Jane. We'll talk more about that later. And he lets her know that he's going to take care of Kevin through college. Right. I think she didn't—I think she didn't tell him until later— or she asked him to stay out of Kevin's life. Well, again, none of this is talked about in the season opener. Even when he first holds Kevin, we're led to believe that Roger doesn't know that's his baby. But then he, in a in a closed door meeting with Joan, he tells her like he's going to take care of Kevin. So I think he realized, yeah, this is my baby. Her husband's still at Vietnam. She didn't have that abortion. <laughs> right. Like Greg doesn't even come home until that baby's like a couple months old. Right. Right. But I do know. Right. But I do know she specifically asks Roger to stay out of his life. Even when yeah, yeah. she tells him, like, through. we're going to pass him out off as like Greg's baby because his dad's a war hero and you're a married man and my boss. <laughs> right. She's not feeling it. Which. No, I, I get it. I get it. And like, I get it. Does Joan kind of dirty. We're going to talk about He's, this in a, a little bit. He does her kind of dirty. No, no, it's like, yeah, he's done her very dirty. Although he ultimately makes up for it, but yeah, he's done her dirty. So we see flashbacks of them having this affair while he's married to Mona. And then when he finally divorces Mona, it's for Jane, someone he doesn't even know. Um, because Jane's so beautiful. That's all he really likes about Jane is that she's so beautiful. He doesn't know anything about her. And once they're married, he dislikes everything that he comes to know about her, right? And... He's married to to Jane when he conceives Kevin with Joan. Um, and then he divorces Jane. And he still doesn't ask uh, Joan to leave her husband and be with him, right? You tell Joan that you want her so much. And he, he comes to her apartment once even saying that, you know, you always say it's over, but then you always come back. He's basically treating her like an object, just ready to be picked up and played with whenever he's in the mood, Right. He takes all these other women seriously, but not her, not even after she has his child. I have to think on that because I I do think that's most of it. But I also, I remember that Joan is always also like, no, like, no, because like she doesn't want the scandal. Right. I mean, I, I believe she didn't want the scandal when he was married to Mona, right? But now you're divorcing Jane, so what's the problem? There's definitely that I don't want to be the other woman or or I don't want to be the homewrecker vibe. Like, I don't want to break up the marriage because it's very clear that all the girls in the office really trust Jane and all the colleagues' wives trust their husbands around her and that, that matters to her. 
Yeah. Oh, you're talking. You, you meant Joan, right? Joan, I'm sorry. Why yeah, are those yeah, names yeah. so similar? Y'all gotta stop doing this, writers. <laughs> right. Um, but, but no, yeah, and and that's what and that's what I always get from her because I feel like he's. Cause I think he's brought, like he, he brings it up and she's always like, nah, like I'm not feeling it. Like this is good. Like this, what we like, what this thing that we're doing is, is fine. And it is fine. And I mean, I guess it's fine until like, it isn't till he loses lucky strike. And then she really like puts an end to it. Right. And, you know, there's a scene in the office, in her office in season five, where he's talked, the scene where he's saying, oh, I, I don't worry about my divorce with Jane. I can take care of Kevin through college. And, you know, and he's like, oh, and she's like, I hadn't even considered it. You're a free man now. I'm sure some other girl will benefit. And she says it in a tone where, like, she's like, I know you're not serious about me. I know it's not, it's never, you're never going to pick me you like sleeping with me, but you don't want to marry me type of situation. See, and that's, and that's interesting. Cause I didn't read that that way. I re- I think I totally read it differently. Like, and in fact, it's why, like, I sort of like my heart kind of went out to Roger. Cause I was like, wow, Roger's like really, cause Roger's had like a lot of issues with his daughter. And so I think he really sees Kevin as like a second chance and then he tried to be a part of Ellerly's life, which is his daughter's son, his grandchild. And then I don't remember his daughter's name. And then his daughter took away Ellerly, like took Ellerly away from him again. And so he's trying to be a part of Ellerly and Kevin's life. He's like, I really want to like do this. And Joan's like, fuck off. Like, and it's and I'm like, oh, like, come on. Like. But no, but but I think that's that's the point I'm getting at. Um, she reacts this way when he says he's gonna take care of Kevin because he wants to be a part of his son's life, but he doesn't want to be a real part of her life. I think she wants Roger and she wants Roger to choose her, not feel obligated to her because she has his son. Um like she's she's just not the one he chooses, not even when they're both free. And not even when she kicks Greg out and he comes home from Vietnam and then tells her that the army told him that he had to do another year. But then his mother spills the beans at dinner and lets Joan and and Joan realizes that he signed up for another year. And in that moment, she realizes that she's fighting for a man who really doesn't want to be with her. And she kicks him out. And it's just her and her mom and her kid. And that's probably one of the bravest things that anyone on this kid has done. Because even when Betty left her man, it was with the security of knowing that she had another man ready to go, right? Right. She had, like, a very significant (laughs) jump off happening. But Joan doing this on her own in the 60s, I don't envy that. But she's in a good position. She makes good money and she can support herself and her child, which a lot of women still can't do even to this day. And m- most women couldn't do in the 60s. A lot of the women on this show, including the partner's wives, could not do what Joan does because they don't have jobs. And listen, should anything happen, like, Roger's right there. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> you know, like, she chooses to, I mean, she chooses not to take his money. Like, she makes the choice not to take his money. Like, she, his, the money's there if she needs, but it's there if she needs it, really. Like, he's always there to fall back on. Yeah, Joan knows uh, Roger's not going to baby starve. <laughs> she's like, uh, but something, I do want to talk about something that happens in the, the season opener really quick. Um, 
Zooby zooby zoo. Like, is it just me? Like, this is probably just me. I have a really hard time watching scenes in films or television where a character is being embarrassed or doing something to bring embarrassment to themselves or another person. Like, I physically can't watch. I have to look away. Like, uh, like, like 10 seconds in, I was so embarrassed for Megan that I couldn't watch the scene. So I lost all of the subtext of the body language in that scene. Oh, that scene's epic. Zooby, zooby, zoo. <laughs> okay. So about zooby, zoo. So Don famously, and it's just like, I mean, it's the first sort of, I don't want to say it's the first death knell in their relationship, but it's definitely like a ringing of the bell that like they are not right for each other. It's absolutely the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, Don uh, is famously does not like his birthday, and everybody knows this, and so. Except for Megan. And Megan is like, oh, it would be a great idea to throw a surprise party. (laughs) And so she does. She throws a surprise party. And, of course, like, none of his friends are there because, like, Don doesn't have friends. And it's just, like, people from work and then her friends, really. And so he... And, like, they're... And then even worse, like, they're all in his, like, home... Which we know that, like, unless it's, like, formal, like, a formal business meeting, Don doesn't really have people in his house. Like, that's not his vibe. But, like, they're all up in the house, and it's this party. And so at this party, Megan, like, sings him, like, a a burlesque and does, like, a a sexy thing. And it is, whew, it's awkward, to say the least. I don't. I didn't see what she was doing because after the first bizu, I was done. I was like, I gotta go, sis. Um, <laughs> I was just looking away from the screen. Um, it is. It is the first, like the beginning of the M. It is something that makes it very, very clear that they don't really know each other or, or understand each other. So, Don doesn't like his birthday, and Megan may not have known this prior, but Peggy flat out tells her, and then she chooses to ignore it and ignore the fact that Peggy told her that he also hates surprises. Right? right, and decides to do both. Now, it is absolutely wrong when you know or are given information about someone to ignore that and do what you want. Because the fact of the matter is, Megan threw this party for Don, not for him, but for her. Now, Don's upset that she threw this party, but sir, your wife is 25 years old. This is the kind of shit, and speaking as a former 25-year-old wife, this is the kind of shit 25-year-old wives do. Sorry about it. <laughs> Right. And I guess you would find it cute if you were 25, but you're not. You're old. Right. Or at least he would have found it more palatable. But he's 40 years old and he's not with the shit anymore. It's not it's not cute to him. Right. Um, And honestly, like the disconnect between them about this birthday thing continues to appear in other areas of their relationship. And. Um, we see it particularly when we meet Megan's parents, Emil and Marie. 
Her father is someone I brought up earlier as an example of an intellectual who really doesn't have any right to be judging ad execs. At least they create things. All you do is sit and regurgitate and reflect upon and project upon the words of of wiser men than you who have long been dead. What do you do, Emil? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like him judging Don was so extra to me. Like, what do you do, sir? <laughs> I'm white and rich and I'm educated. Isn't that enough? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He's not rich, remember? He looks oh, down on the rich. That's right. Oh, like I'm a communist. I'm so much. Okay, and it's it's cool, but, like, your your wife is dripping. You your white your house is dripping. Megan has a bunch of siblings. You are not the the uh the 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 the, the you know Mark's dream, sir. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. So they come over and we see the very, very tense relationship between Megan and her mother, particularly Megan. And her Megan's parents, right? Her dad has affairs with his grad students in order to feel important and smart. And her mother throws jabs at him every chance she gets to make him feel low in retaliation. When they come to visit, Don's getting some award and Sally is allowed to come with them. And Sally actually catches Marie giving Roger a blowjob, a thing no child should have to see, by the way. Poor Sally. <laughs> oh. Keep traumatizing this child. Prior to this, though, Roger and Jane took some LSD and had what was, I think, the most amicable divorce in the history of divorces. Like, for real. <laughs> like, they said lovely things to each other. They realized that they weren't working out. Um, they were more honest with each other than they would have ever been if they were sober. And their marriage dissolves. Um, and even after their LSD trip, Roger is much more considerate of, you know, with one minor hiccup, much more considerate of Jane's wants and needs. And honestly, I feel like of everyone on Mad Men, Jane probably got the best ending because she got to do her bit as a trophy wife. And then even after that, after the divorce, she got to continue being a kept woman. I was about um, to say, she, she got, like, she got her bag <laughs> afterwards, and she could, like, live right. her life. I'm like, that's the best. And all she had to do was be a secretary for six months. <laughs> Listen, um, God has his favorites. <laughs> don't, don't be fooled. It's in this season, too, where we realize that, or I realize anyway, because I don't, I, I honestly don't remember ever hearing this prior, but this is the season where I learn, anyway, that Jane is Jewish, and Roger only feels comfortable discussing it with potential Jewish clients. She even talks to that, says that in the cab ride home. Oh, you're comfortable telling people I'm Jewish now? Right. And I think it. I think it's only because like they hired a Jewish copywriter in Ginsburg, right? That's part okay. of it. Well, yeah. And at the dinner, he was talking with the company owner of Manischewitz. Yeah. That, that- Fine. Um, there's only one thing he said at that dinner table that I believe to be true. When he looks at Jane and he said, I always believe Jewish women were the most beautiful in the world. I believe he means that because Jane's beauty is literally the only thing he loves about her. He thinks her beauty is supernatural, unreal, spectacular, out of the ordinary. And that's why he had to have her. Right. Um, nothing else he said is the truth because we know Roger's a bigot. He even uses the term normal people when talking to Michael Ginsburg. 
Right. And it's not not like a, it's not like, um, and it is like about his Jewishness. It's not about the fact that Michael is like, has like mental illness. Right, right, right. We don't even really see how mentally ill Michael is, if we're being honest. Um, What I like about the Michael character and the way he's portrayed is that it's very clear in his interactions with Penny and his father that he struggles with mental illness, but in no way, shape, or form does he allow that to interfere with his work. Um, you know, uh, they, they, um, you know, until he eventually has that breakdown, right? Yeah. He does great work and he's a model employee. And unlike everyone else in the office, he isn't a drunkard. <laughs> um, but when his mental illness does finally come to a head, we realize just how much he's been struggling. Um, And I think that's another thing that I liked about how he's portrayed. He comes onto the scene as the comedian and it's been shown over the years that a lot of times that comedian archetype, that comedian personality is hiding a lot of anxiety and depression. You know, some of the most celebrated comedians of our time died via suicide. Portraying Michael like this instead of the, the very stereotypical, much more harmful displays of mental illness, I think was, um, I think it was handled with a lot of sensitivity and I appreciate it. Same. Like it's, it, it actually really is one of, like, I thought it was a bit, it was more, it was very sensitive, um, for what it was. So this season, we also find out that like another thing, something else we, that is, uh, imminent um is we find out that like lane is in a lot of trouble um he has back taxes that he owes to Mm -hmm. the uk um in addition to the money that he put in to start sterling cooper Oh my God! Whatever. Draper Price. Price. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. All those. Well, yes. But just to say the agency girl, because we don't remember it all. <laughs> we don't remember the agency. Um, and he owes a lot of money, and um, into and it all comes to to a head this season, and he he commits suicide. Yeah. Um. <sighs> Lane was juggling a lot of anxiety and a lot of secrets this season about his financial situation. He didn't share with any of the partners. And I'm sure if he had just told Bert, listen, Bert, I need you to loan me $8,000. Bert would have given him $8,000. Right? If he told dollars yeah. Roger would have given him $8,000. Especially after he, that fight with Pete, which Pete lost horribly. We love it. Um, Roger would have given him $8,000 just for the entertainment. <laughs> Right. So what he does, so what Lane does is that he basically like the the agency is like having they don't have enough money to give out Christmas bonuses. So but like Lane he embezzles the money basically. He takes the money, but he does put it back. But Don finds out because Lane forged Don's signature um on the check and Don is like you're fired. <laughs> like, and you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. Go back to England. Go. And um Lane just like breaks down and then and and kills himself. Which, yeah, I just he could have just said that he was in bad straits. Like, I I right. and we talked about this because I didn't get why he did it, but you brought it up that like it's probably like a cultural thing. 
Right. Um, okay. So I'm going to use a very, very sensitive term, um, honor killing. A lot of Americans are familiar with that term in Islam, where uh, a person will either kill themselves or their family members will kill them if they bring shame upon the family, quote unquote. The term honor killing doesn't exist in other groups and other cultures, but the act of it has existed for a long time. Uh, it exists in like Japanese culture in a major way. And and a lot of these like uh, wealthy old money families that also exists where like it's better to kill yourself than to shame your family. You shame your father, shame your wife and have the, the, your shame hanging over the heads of your children. Um, and he has a young son still, Nigel. Did we even get to meet Nigel? No. And we just know he's he would rather do somewhere. this. Right. And Lane would rather do this than deal with the shame of being fired and potentially going to prison. Right. Um, so this is what he chooses to do. He got that line of credit, um, for the company, then embezzled money from the company. And then he got caught and he couldn't deal with it anymore. Lane's been coming apart at the seams since season four. So I don't feel like this was rushed at all. And I don't feel like, you know, this came out of nowhere, but it was still shocking to see. Yeah. You know, and I guess like the tragedy of it and I guess in the, the poet, I don't want to say it's poetic, but I guess like the, what's beautiful about the writing of it essentially is he, and it, and in fact, it puts the sort of like, chocolate bunny episode into more context oh god um you guys that's something somebody actually wrote uh chocolate bunny i can't but um it puts like the whole black lane's black girlfriend into into some more context and he even says something about it i think earlier like in season four he's like he really likes america and like being american in the sense of like He's not restricted by class in the same way and that, you know, it. this is actually an opportunity. Lane actually sees, like, being at the agency and having a stake in the partnership as, like, a way to sort of reinvent his life mm-hmm. um, and reinvent his identity. And uh, I guess it's sort of poetic about how even if you're miles away from something, how, like, your demons can still sort of trap you in this way mentally, even when you're sort of given the opportunity to do other things. Because with I with Nari Naughton's character, like I it, that really was like I I think he really saw like this sort of thing with his wife so far away. And he saw like I can be a different person. Like all these things that I'm unhappy with, like I don't really have to keep doing them until his father showed up, right? And then like literally bludgeoned him in the head so ugly so so ugly um (laughs) prior to lane's suicide though um we see that over the years he has developed a really really close relationship with joan they you know they were rocky at first uh he stepped on her toes unintentionally a few times but they they got to a really good place this season um It's in this season, by the way, that Joan leaves Greg. But after leaving Greg in this season, they're trying to land the Jaguar account. And uh, one of the heads of the Jaguar company um, makes it plain that 
uh, they're not getting his business um, or he's not even considering their business unless he gets a night with Joan. A night with Joan isn't a guarantee, but it will certainly sweeten the pot. And then grimy little weasel that he is, Pete essentially propositions Joan as like, hey, take one for the team, spread your legs for this man, and um, and we'll we'll make it worth your while if we get this account. Um, so he, after this, and Joan tells him basically, you are unbelievable and you couldn't afford me even if I was open to this. After this, Pete has a closed door meeting with Bert, Roger, Lane, and Don. And the five of them sit there um, Don thinks the idea is flat out ridiculous and doesn't even want to entertain it. And Lane feels the same way. Bert is disgusted by the idea and makes it clear that he wants Joan to know that she doesn't have to do this, like to keep her job. He doesn't, she doesn't have to do this. And Roger asks if, jo- if Joan is actually okay with this. And then when Pete kind of, distorts the conversation and makes it seem to Roger that it was a matter of money. Roger just sits there in stunned silence, but they have this very tentative vote where everyone except, uh, uh, Don agrees to proposition, uh, Joan about this. And Lane goes to her and does the only thing that I think he feels he can do in this situation. He's like, listen, I can't talk you out of this. They're saying they're going to give you $50,000 and that's a lot of money. But please don't take that money. If you are absolutely going to do this, ask for an ownership percentage of the firm, which is probably the best advice you could give to someone in that situation, right? <laughs> right. And I remember, yeah, because like, and it's such a, like you said, like Pete, Pete, purposefully misinterprets her her tone because the subtext of it is she says you couldn't afford it and the subtext is like even if I wanted to and Pete knows that but he goes in there and he's like she was open and he says it back as if she was open to it and she wasn't so the like you said and um and yeah, Lane knows he can't stop it, but he's like, listen, if you're going to, this is what you can, this is how you can actually get something out of it. Right. Now, Don doesn't even want to entertain this. He doesn't even want to hear this. And honestly, it makes perfect sense. You know, Don has always treated Joan like an older sister. In a lot of ways, every time I look at Don and Joan, I remember his twin sister who died when their mother, you know, with their mother when their mother was giving birth. And I kind of see him as him and her as kind of like twins in that way. And Peggy's like their little sister. (laughs) Right. And even earlier, and I'm going to let you continue, but I I just want to say for reference, earlier in the season, before this happens, there's an episode where Don and Joan spend a whole day together um, and they get like really close. uh, And Don just sort of like takes her like just, you know, to chill because like she's just had like a really shitty day. Right, right, right. Um, Greg, this is the episode where she is served with divorce papers from Greg, and she's upset about it. Now, for context, for people who don't understand why she's upset when she she's the one who asked Greg to leave, the person who files dictates the way the story is told, essentially. Greg filing first, he can paint the picture that she was in the wrong, that she did X, Y, Z, and that he had to get away from her. And and the fact that he filed first and he's also 
a soldier, he has a lot of leverage to completely tarnish her reputation. And that's why she was upset. So Don took her out. You know, they test drove a Jaguar. Yo, there's a scene where the guy won't let them test drive and um, together. There's not room for three people in the car. And so he says, it's got to be one of you at a time. And Don's like, no, she and I are going to get in this car and we're going to drive it around. And the and the guy refuses, and he asks the guy how much a car is worth, and the guy's like fifty six hundred. Don pulls out a checkbook, writes him a check for six thousand, just so they can test drive the car. And I swear, you guys, I got so wet. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a flex. And imagine someone doing this for a friend. No ulterior motive. He's not trying to fuck Joan. I love when shows can really display a really beautiful platonic friendship between men and women. He's not trying to sleep with her. He's never wanted to sleep with her. He literally wrote a check for $6,000 to make his friend happy. Right. I love it. Just so they can, like, you know, drive to the bar and, like, you know, vibes. Um, We love it. We love it. So, yeah, they have this relationship, and they've been very close for a really long time. Um, And... And Don doesn't even want to entertain this idea of her sleeping with this dude. Like, he walks out of the room as soon as humanly possible, right? And, um, you know, Joan understanding her situation, though, and that this is just a job and people lose jobs all the time and understanding the permanence of an ownership stake um, decides to go through with this. And this was such a defining moment for that character because she is someone who has been objectified and um, degraded by so many of the people in that office, um, particularly the Joey character in season four. And for her to do this, we know it took a lot out of her. And it radically changes the way that... um, the partners see her from there on out. They don't treat her any differently, but you can't you can't come back from something like that. Um, she essentially performed the role of a geisha in this in in this season in order to wrangle up new business. And even Bert says in that meeting, like, no, Roger says this is dirty business. This is not how we run and it business. Is She's done a right. lot of things for business, you guys. Right, right. <laughs> And it is like you're it is because it's like, I mean, everybody in that office like says stuff to Joan, like Harry, Ken, um, Paul, when he was Paul, Ken, Paul, when he was there, that grimy little brat, you know, they're all like it's, you know, don't like the, the workplace. It's toxic. It is a toxic environment. But like like you said, there's no coming back from that. And I it, it must be like a really heavy thing to like have some have several have everyone say something to you like say something to you that you've never done and then actually do it like uh, that's like a really heavy thing to contemplate uh, and the way pete dressed this up not only did he misconstrue the conversation to the other partners but when they're having the conversation it's literally just gaslighting central like let me see how dumb this bitch is he actually refers to her as a queen and says, um, and, 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 and tries to compare her to Cleopatra if she should go through with this. Yeah. He's like, is Cleopatra a whore? I'm like, what? <laughs> Shut up, Pete. <laughs> what are you he talking so about right now? Grimy. 
grimy. And if his relationship with her tainted, if this conversation with Joan tainted her reputation, fucking around with Pete ruined another woman by the name of Beth that we meet this season. Rory Gilmore. Yes, Rory Gilmore, a.k.a. Mrs. Carthizer. Um, So Alexis Bledel, the wife of Vincent Carthizer, um, guest stars this season as Beth Dawes. She's the wife of a man who um, Pete is friends with via commuting. He is a life insurance salesman. And he's got a young little something-something in his apartment in the city, 24-year-old and busty, according to him. And um, there's some nights where he doesn't come home. And Beth is not stupid. None of these wives are. She knows that he just, it's not a matter of he can't get away from work on the evenings when he doesn't come home. She waits for him at the train station. He doesn't arrive. Her car is broken down, and Pete gives her a ride home where she proceeds to uh, basically throw herself at him in a moment of vulnerability. Um, But then she gets it out of her system immediately. Pete, however, catches feelings. The woman's husband eventually finds out, and he sends her to a mental health institution and has her undergo electroshock therapy for her manic depression. Now, this is actually something that was very common um, well through the mid-70s of men not liking their wives or men just wanting to punish their wives for affairs or even perceived promiscuity by having them committed. Right. This was very common. This was uh, there was a character dealing with this in season two, Asylum of American Horror Story. Actually, the character was played by Chloe Sevigny, and this was a very, very common thing. Your husband had so much control of your life that even without any diagnosis, even if you had, it doesn't matter if you had a diagnosis or not. Your husband can say you are mad, you are crazy, you are mentally unwell, and have you committed for the rest of your life? This is the power that husbands had over wives, you guys. Yeah, it was. It's like banana nuts, um, and it. It sucks, um, and Pete sucks for it. And this isn't, like, the first time that this has happened. Like, there's another woman that Pete has, like, an affair with, and her husband, like, bounces her off the wall, like, beats the shit out of her when he finds out that that she and Pete hooked up. And it's, like, and it's, I think it's, um, I think it's, I want to say it's in season six, and it's when Trudy realizes that he's been cheating and Trudy's like, you need to get the fuck out of my house. I am not doing this with you anymore. Right. Trudy actually throws him out this season as well. Right. Like Trudy's, Trudy's tossed Pete a lot of times. Um, uh, and which is ridiculous because like I, Trudy's such a good wife. She is such a good wife and mom. And, um, she really loves him for whatever reason. And there's nothing, and he just, you know, he he flings it to the side because he's a piece of shit. But also he just has this other, he has, Pete has like a disconnect with like who he wants to be and who he thinks he can transform himself into versus just like who he is. And he can't like reconcile the two until, or he can't like, be okay with it until really the last season. Right. Um, this season, like you said, Trudy's a real one. She even lets him get an apartment in the city this season. Right. Because she understands how miserable he is out in the burbs. Um, between seasons four and five, 
Pete loses so much respect, not just from his wife, but from his colleagues, right? He's whining all day about how he has nothing. You have a beautiful young wife. You've got a new daughter. you got this great house in the city. Like, there's this episode in, in season um, four, I believe, where they all go to a brothel, right? And he he hooks up with a girl. And as he's walking away with her, Don gives him this look of judgment. And he's like, why are you judging me? And Don's like... Um, I don't judge the others because they're miserable, but I thought you were happy. Um, I thought Trudy's a good person and she makes you happy. And if I'd met um, Megan first, I wouldn't do what you were doing. And basically calls Pete out on his bullshit. Because Pete has literally no reason to, to, to be upset with his life. Like, what are you whining about? What do you mean you have nothing when you literally have everything? Right. Which it's ironic that Don says that considering uh, the next season, but okay, Very fine. Quickly. I think it's yeah. interesting too that like when Pete is with this uh, prostitute, she puts on three different acts for him before he finally finds one, the one that he likes. The first is the coy ingenue. She says to Pete, this is my first time. I've never really done this before. And then the second one is, oh, honey, you had such a hard day at work. Like, basically the wife role. And he's like, no. And the third, she gets on her hands and knees and she says, you're my king. And that's what gets him going. And I feel like this scene really pinpoints the root of Pete's dysfunction. That inferiority complex, that feeling that I am not enough. It's not that he doesn't have enough. He feels he is not enough. That is the root of the issue. Right. 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 Which like, which, you know, I empathize with, but at the same time, like, no, Pete, like pull it together. Like you've got to pull it together. You've just got to be okay with who you are. But some other stuff that happens before. So. Okay. So here's some other, just some other stuff. Okay. So. Betty, okay, so Betty um, gains, like, a lot of weight this season. They dress up January Jones in this really ridiculous fat suit uh, that looks ridiculous. Uh, Why this whole dialogue of Betty getting fat? I don't understand why that was necessary to the plot. Because I think they're trying to connect it to um, when she was younger, because when... Because the whole thing is, is, like, Betty has, like, super disordered eating. Mm-hmm. And she, there's, in season one and two, she talks about how she was fat as a child. And then her mother, like, bullied her into an eating disorder. And that's mm-hmm. how she lost the weight. Mm-hmm. So now that she's remarried to Henry, and I guess she's, like, experiencing, like, happiness, essentially, she's regained the weight or, like... The dis- or, like, her eating disorder has gone in, in another way to, like, for, I guess, coping with change. Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely got the coping with change vibe. Season five, Betty, more than any other season, seems to be dealing with feelings of powerlessness, um, which she takes out on Sally and food. Right. Um, um, but I, I still don't think that that was... I feel I, I I think there was other ways of handling this. Um, Betty has a lot of problems. <laughs> Sally's therapist knows that better than anyone, right? Right. <laughs> um, 
there were other ways of handling this um, that wouldn't have required a fat suit. I think that was disrespectful to the audience, to be very honest with you, and the actress herself. Um, let's like let's say something where maybe perhaps she tries to project her eating disorder onto her child. Because I feel like they they have been leading up to this for a while. There's a scene in season two where Sally flat out says mommy doesn't like to eat. Uh, there's a scene in season four where Miss Blankenship sees Sally for the first time and says, oh, she looks much chubbier in photos. They could have definitely played with that now that Sally is older and she's getting attention from boys that um, that that uh, Betty starts projecting her own insecurities onto her daughter. Um, that wouldn't have been off the mark for the Betty character at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think Betty already does project all of her own insecurities onto Sally. Um, right. I think that's why she tries really hard to control Sally, which I think we do get more of in from now till the end of the series. We get tons of. I do think it's interesting, though, that as Betty starts to put on the weight... And, um, you know, she sees the doctor who feels that there might be something wrong with her thyroid Um, before running tests, before anything. The first person she calls with this information is Don. Right. Um, Like, I understand he's your baby. He's your baby daddy. (laughs) But that's not why she's calling him. Like, she's calling him because she's scared and she wants somebody to handle it. But you have a husband that's capable of handling things. Why did she go to him first? Right. I mean, she I mean, she. To her credit, she does call out for Henry because she thinks he's going to be in the house, and then he's not there. And then she, then she, you know, she's scared. So she calls Don, and you know, you know, it's both of them because they're they're both sort of still obsessed with each other in a way that will never end. <laughs> Are they? Yeah, because then later on in the season, like when Megan finally like leaves Dawn um she's like you're you're just obsessed with your liquor and your ex-wife and your screwed up kids like she's like you can't be happy because you're still obsessed with all those things so you know I mean well Megan sweetie he's always going to be obsessed with his kids they're his kids babe um (laughs) (laughs) the, the second wives in this show really got me fucked up Jane and Megan sweetie the man's wife man's children will always matter more than you sorry about it uh, but she purposefully and and listen, he he does cheat on her, but that's later. We'll get into that soon. I do, but like Betty, but the I brought up Betty because I I thought it was interesting how like when Betty starts going to Weight Watchers, she uses Weight Watchers as therapy, and that was fascinating to me. <laughs> like poor Betty just really really wants to talk to somebody. Um, another thing, uh, so Megan and Don get married, right? And when Megan and Don get married. Don is like, I cannot just be married to a lowly secretary. So he bumps her up from like secretary to copywriter and she is good at it. You know, she's decent at it. Uh, It's actually fascinating to watch how uh, we talk a lot about how Peggy and Joan are both two sides of the same coin in terms of uh, their struggles within the office and as career woman, but it's fascinating to watch how Megan rises through the ranks so quickly um, because with the, and with the big part of that being how she's intimately tied to Don. Um, so Megan, uh, Megan uh, finally, um, 
even though she's really good at copyright copywriting and she could have had a great career out of it, she it tells Don that I don't want to do advertising. I've I want to be an actress. And he's like, girl, what? And uh, she's like, please. And he's support. And he is support. Like, I guess for his, his for Don, he's supportive. Um, and, but I, I want to get to some, but she's struggling. She's a struggling actress and she's not really landing anything. And then she goes, but then she finds out about this commercial that, is happening that Dawn is specifically casting at Sterling Cooper Draper Price. And she asks Dawn to leverage his position to get her this job so it it will launch her career. Because so far she hasn't had anything. And Dawn ultimately does it. But I bring it up because I it I was just like, it's so ugly that like he does this thing that he doesn't really want to do because he tells her, he's like, you don't want me to be responsible for launching your career. But he, but he does do it anyway. And it's ugly to watch Don do this thing for Megan that he refused to do for Betty in season one, which was Betty had gotten that um, modeling job for Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And if he had just taken the job at McCann... It would have launched. It would have relaunched Betty's career as a model because then they would have used the photos. And it's it's ugly. It's just ugly. I just hated it. I was like, damn, you could do that for Megan, but you couldn't do it for Betty. I mean, I understand why he didn't do it for Betty. He wanted Betty to be a housewife and take care of his kids. He wants Megan to take care of his kids. Yeah, but his kids also at this point still have a mom. Megan's only a part time mom. She's a stepmom. Like, and I think, I think, I think more than wanting to help Megan, Don was afraid of losing Megan. He wasn't afraid of losing Betty when she'd had his children. When she told him she wanted a divorce, he was not ready for that. <laughs> he thought Betty was, Betty was locked in. Like we, we have three kids together. She ain't going nowhere, but Megan's not locked in this. She's not these children's mother. She's still young. She's very attractive. She's a very nice woman. She's not stuck. And I think this is the advantage that these second wives have. They can leverage their youth and their detachment from this man's life. And he didn't want to lose her. So he did this not to help Megan, but to try to keep Megan. I mean, it's ugly. That's all. Um, also, another it is thing. ugly. <laughs> it is ugly. That's like, all. And, That's oh, can we talk? Can we talk about how he throws his weight around in the office to try to get M- Megan to basically obey him? Like their marriage is strained early because he's still abusing the power dynamics of boss and employee. Yeah, he he blurs the line. Like he's really he just doesn't have any boundaries and he, like he needs them. He needs them. He needs Yeah, he and won't. I said Megan's dumb, but Megan's not really dumb because she knew what what Don was doing and she tried her best to curtail it. But he 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 wanted a di- he wanted her to be a diminished version of herself. He thought they would get married and she would quit. 
Then when she didn't quit, he elevated her status to reflect better on him, but then wouldn't let her do her job and kept ordering her to come on lunches and brunches and dates and trips with him. I mean, not even that. Like, he, it, I think she does the job too well. Because when they go to, and this is what hurt me because, like, and I guess it's why I really felt for Betty because he essentially gives Megan the thing that Betty had wanted to be for him for so long. Like, and he wouldn't let Betty like, like when they go do that pitch together and Mm -hmm. she whispers in his ear that they're about to lose the account. So like Mm -hmm. they need to just do the pitch right now at dinner versus like waiting. I was like, damn, that's all Betty ever wanted to be and do for him is like do what Megan's doing. And like, you know, up, you know, upgrade you diamond you know silk blazers vbs cufflinks and you wouldn't do it you wouldn't let her and now like Mm -hmm. megan is like i hate that it's ugly right and you know to his credit he enjoyed the fact that megan was actually a talented copywriter Unlike Peggy, I don't think Don ever really had trust and faith in Megan as a copywriter. He was pleasantly surprised when she could handle the job. And the Heinz pitch was amazing. It was really, really amazing. Um, And, you know, he was ready to give her full credit for it. She let him take it because, as she says to him later on, winning that Heinz account didn't matter. It made her less happy than losing an acting role because acting is where her passion really lies. And he tried to keep her locked down in copywriting, right? Where basically right. he could keep an eye on her, the little woman, and she wouldn't get too big and meet new people and blah, 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 right? He tried very hard to keep her in this niece. That's why I say when he got her that audition and he got her that role, he didn't do it for Megan. He did it for himself because he didn't want to lose that girl. I'm telling you, he did that for himself. Donald Draper was not trying to help nobody's career. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but it was this it was the second, it was ultimately the second nail in the coffin. Um, so something else really big. Wait, 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 wait. Was All it right. the second nail when he left her at that that truck stop near uh, the Howard Johnson? Remember he left her? I remember he left find her. her own way home. I yeah. remember he left her, yeah, but I thought that happens next season. That happens this season. Yeah, that happens this season. He oh, that was there. crazy. <laughs> and and she says something very interesting when he finally gets home um, after waiting for her. And she tells him how she was on a bus for seven hours to get home. And she had to be at Port Authority and was trying to find a cab and all this other stuff. And they fight. And she's like, every time we fight, it diminishes us. And it goes in one ear and out the other because it's a dawn. But that was the most significant thing that she'd ever said to him, and he didn't take it seriously. And I think she knew that this toxic relationship couldn't last after that. Yeah. No, yeah. Like, she. T- I mean, yeah. Cause, I mean, and I think, and that's what I'm saying when I say, like, he tried to make her Betty 2.0. He thought that he she would just react, like, because I'm sure he's done crazy shit like that to Betty. Like, and, she, and he thought she would react like Betty, that she would just sit there and wait for him. But like, nah, like this is a whole new, it's a whole new person. And I do, I actually really like that. And I, I like that writing because I do think it signifies the sort of like the time period and like younger women and how things have really like changed, like, you know, um, and the personality of of women that age, they're just like, you know, I'm not going to wait on you. Like, I can 
just go fix my own shit. Like, I don't have to do this with you. Um, Betty probably wouldn't have said that to him because she would have been afraid, right? Like, yeah, too afraid and, to stand up to him like Megan did. Right, and she's been conditioned not to, right? She's been conditioned right. to just, like, that's how she was raised. Um, Megan is a symptom of so many things about Don that isn't forward-thinking, he he doesn't. I don't know if he necessarily still wants Betty, but he wants the women who were groomed and raised in her time period. Right? These modern women, this modern music, modern TV. Don doesn't fuck with any of it. <laughs> right. He doesn't really fuck with any of it, like at all. Um, which is another, I think, symptom of, I guess, not his decline, but I guess it's just more of just like his shit like because that also used to be something he worried about was like getting old getting older not being able to like think ahead a lot of his job is dependent on being able to read the times and and understand the moment and he's he's loot and he he doesn't it's just becoming more clear and clear that he doesn't really get anything that's happening around him he's definitely like in decay and decline um, right and enter the midwife cri- the midlife crisis wife <laughs> right <laughs> so so another thing that's sort of been happening through this season the last thing before we before we kind of move on um well two things really is so more and more like dawn has been treating peggy like She's not shit. Well, he treats her like a child. He's very paternalistic. He talks down to her when he feels like the need. He takes her for granted. Um, So Peggy has a meeting with one of Sterling Cooper Draper Price's rivals, Cutler, Cleason, and Clow. And... Uh, specifically with Ted Clow, and she, he makes a very compelling offer. I mean, he's going to raise her salary, you know, new job title. She gets to be, like, head of something. She's no longer going to be just a copywriter. She's going to be head of something. Um, and he says something really real to her. He He says, you've grown as much as you can there. Like, and... I think Peggy realizes it too. And Peggy essentially breaks up with Dawn and she goes to, she quits and goes to work somewhere else. And it's, it's, it's intense when it happens. It's very intense. I think these scenes between Peggy and Dawn have the intensity that they do, because like you said, he treats her in a very paternalistic manner, and she's very clearly wanting to be seen as an equal. They have a very big brother, little sister dynamic between them, right? Yeah. And the more Peggy grows, I feel the more that Don is subconsciously, I don't think it's conscious to him, but it's very subconsciously threatened by her because she is younger, because she does understand the times, because she is living them right now. Her youth, her future is unraveling in this moment. And the Peggy's of the world are going to be the future of advertisement, and he's going to be left in the dust. Um, And I don't think that he wants to hold Peggy back, but he always keeps trying to, quote, put her in her place, 
it feels like. No, he definitely is always putting her in her place. Um, and it's, we don't like it. Um, there, th- this comes to a head a few times. They have a big fight, um, on the evening, um, before he, he finds out that Anna has passed from her cancer. Um, they have several little fights throughout season five that culminates in that major fight. Um, it's very clear that she can only grow so much. Um, you know, it's, everybody's got to leave the nest sometime and, and for Sterling Cooper, Draper Price was Peggy's nest. She's got to fly away. She does. She has to fly. She has to fly away, and she has to um, uh, make it—not make it on her own, but like I guess, yeah, make it on her own and and really test to see what she's made of. Um, and I mean, it it happens. The, when they when she does effectively, I don't want to say break up because it's not a breakup, but when they do part ways, it's particularly painful because Peggy becomes one of like what three people who know the truth about Don um and know that he's Dick Whitman. So like he is very close to her. Uh I mean she's she's cleaned him up when he's been absolutely disgusting. Uh right. She knows him in a very intimate way, so it's um, it's hard, but it's it's needed. It's necessary. Don does not do boundaries at all. <laughs> right. Oh, can we also talk very quickly about the audacity, the balls that it takes for Don to tell a secret like this to Faye and then dump her the way that he did? Oh, yeah, that was wild. Because if I told someone a secret like that, like the some shit that could land me in federal prison for for identity fraud and desertion, I'm I'm doing my best to keep you happy, <laughs> right? And and that's why I was like Megan was just there. Like that's why I was like said earlier. I was like Megan was just there because like in truth and in honesty, I do think he was falling in love with Faye. Like he was just like I do. It was just it was it was a, just a series of of circumstances because like. But Faye was slow and stable. They were falling in love in a very healthy, natural way. True. But Don doesn't do slow and stable, this fast and dysfunctional. <laughs> it's just, I hate it because it's so true. Yeah, because I'm like, oh, you guys, they're falling in love. Like, he's confided in her. It's so healthy. You know, she don't like them kids, but she only has to be a stepmommy. It's fine. Like... It's going to be okay. And then he's just like, nope. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's alluded that he told Megan his secret sometime after they got married. Um, especially during that truck stop uh, or the Howard Johnson's parking lot argument um, where um, she's like, what are you going to, he's like, what are you going to do? going to call your mom and talk about me in French. And she's like, why don't you call your mom, Don? And he looks at her and she looks at him and she's like, fuck, I crossed the line, didn't I? <laughs> it's it's interesting um i'm of the mind that if more than two people know something it's not a secret but at this point of everyone living betty knows faye knows uh peggy knows and megan knows um and his daughter sally will eventually know it's alluded um (laughs) sir you're taking a lot on faith right now. Peg, oh, I forgot. Pete Campbell knows. Oh, he yeah, knew Pete before Campbell. everyone. Uh, like he, oh. he was the only first person to find out after Anna. So like, and 
if Pete has shown us anything, he's not a man of integrity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, like, I also think Pete is afraid of Don. You know what I mean? You don't need to be afraid of someone. Bars, he can't hurt you from Rikers, Pete. And I think he knows that deep down. <laughs> deep down. Well, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. No, Pete's like too afraid. I do no, like when... he isn't afraid of turning in Don because of what Don will do. He's afraid of turning in Don because he is afraid of how it will look to the partners and how it will look to the public at large. Because Roger Sterling would absolutely have fired him over it for exposing Don. Bert would have fired him over it, too. <laughs> so season five ends, they get the Jaguar account, right? And so that means uh, a huge, like, influx of cash. All the partners, Don, uh, Joan, Bert, and Roger, go up to this empty uh, office building that they just bought to expand their offices and um and that's where we end season five so season five good bad or basic um honestly lane's suicide really hurt me but i understand why it happened and the lead up was i think well paced so i'm still going to give season five a very good what about you you know i after thinking about the lane situation, I understand it. I understand it. And I think now that I understand it and like the vibe, I I'm about it. And I, I like everything else that happened. I thought everything else was well executed again. So I am going to give it also a solid good. And there you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made seasons four and five of Mad Men good, bad, basic, and completely captivating. If you'd like to check out this series, Mad Men is currently streaming for free on Amazon Prime. If you're a GBB patron on our top two tiers, be sure to check out our Mad Men Spotify playlist if you haven't already. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, be sure to share it with your friends. Tune in next week as we keep the historical drama season going with the recap of Mad Men season six and seven. You don't want to miss out on this conversation. The Good, the Bad, the Basic is currently streaming on all major podcast platforms. So be sure to tune in to our regular weekly episodes on the go. Leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media. Please follow us at the Good Bad Basic on Twitter and at Good Bad Basic Pod on Instagram to get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all of our weekly episodes debut first. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash good bad basic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time, bye everyone.